Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. I am Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio is Jeremy Bean. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Does that mean we're double YD bra, by the way? Well, there's a, there's a lot of cup to fill in this country. Okay. That's right. So, do you guys know what today is? No, what is today? Wasn't going to reveal this until we were actually in the studio, so that we could. Uh, You're pregnant. Discuss this. Right? Yes. Again. <laughs> yeah, the weekly world news is going to be here any moment. Uh, <laughs> no, um, this is the to the day uh, anniversary of when we posted our first podcast. Wow. Yeah. Really? Hey. October nineteenth. Yes, October nineteenth wow. is when. So we've been. We've been out there for uh, an entire year now. Wow, that's terrifying. You need a sign that says, like, you know, one year and still doubting or, you know, like over, <laughs> over 19 converted, something like that. Yeah, yeah, over 19 <laughs> deconverted. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, we have – we've grown quite a bit. And well, I mean, you would have to, uh, or you wouldn't have <laughs> anything. Yeah, we but, started uh, at, uh, at we started low, at zero. Uh, yeah, but um, but we're fairly fairly frequently in the um, first yeah. uh, one, two, or three slots on iTunes in our category, which is really cool. We've been consistently in number one this past week, and uh, there's been previous times where that's been true as well. So I'm pretty excited about how well it's done over the past year. And we have a related announcement. Now, at a year old, another exciting opportunity for reasonable doubts. Why don't you tell him about that, Dave? Uh, he doesn't know what it is. <laughs> what? I, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> we have to tell each other what's exciting. That's right. You know what's exciting, don't you? Uh, world peace. Help me out here. Now that we've uh, cataloged a number of episodes and a new radio station has come to Grand Rapids, uh, Reasonable Doubts is actually going to be broadcast on the radio. Yeah. Which means we have to cut out uh, a few choice words for our, our radio edits. Yeah, despite the fact that I've figured, always thought of us as a clean podcast going back and reviewing <laughs> stuff for radio, it has it has become, uh, I have become aware of some of the things that do creep in there that are not at all. There's a little difference there. Yeah. So WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids. Yep, uh, 1680 AM. If you're, if you're in West Michigan, that's where you can hear us. And Reality Radio will be streaming live over the internet very soon. And once that happens, we'll announce where you can hear it on the podcast. Now, uh, instead of having the shit list, we have the poopy list? Uh, I don't... I, no, no, no. I think no. to you our podcast listeners... Instead of having the list, we're going to have the poo list. Yeah, exactly. I think to our podcast listeners, not much is going to change at all. Um, Except probably we'll keep the time a little bit tighter. Well, we'll try that, to. That yeah. We'll try. Yeah. We've never been very good at that. No. And, and we'll... We'll probably begin with some sort of radio esque type intro, but yeah. Sure. Other than that, I don't. I don't think we're gonna change. So we're not selling out. No. Well, I'm. I'm willing to sell out, but they just haven't offered us any money yet. So. Well, and the truth is, the only people who are gonna really listen to this are still gonna be on the uh, on the internet. So you. This is true. You guys listen to us first, and our only real dedicated listeners. So we're always gonna be true to the absolutely podcast format. In talking about how much the show has grown over the last year, uh, part of that means we're getting a lot more listener response, which yep. is fantastic. And please keep that up, doubtcast at gmail.com. So we thought we'd uh, take some time on this episode to respond to some of the emails we've gotten. Start out here with a quick one from Tony from London, England. Still blows me away that people are listening to us on the other side of the pond there. And he says, I love the show, but I need some help. My girlfriend is really into reading ghost books and watching ghost hunting shows. I have kind of a little bit of this problem myself, too, Tony. I can, I can empathize. Uh, and needless to say, she's a bit naive. Up until about two years ago, she didn't believe in evolution. And it took a lot for me to convince her that it really happened. 
So what I'm asking for is some ammunition to convince her that ghosts don't really exist as I can't give a convincing enough reason. Thanks, guys. All right, so Tony's girlfriend is afraid of ghosts. How do we address this? Damned if I know. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to be hanging out with Ernie Hudson in a month. So. <laughs> seriously? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so I'm getting that, getting that out of my system now. Well, that, that is a good question, Tony, because frankly, there isn't really a lot of good ammunition to prove that there are no ghosts because you can't really prove a negative. We've talked yeah. about this before. It's that, that idea that I can't prove to you that there aren't invisible gremlins holding up your chair, but there is no evidence to suggest that there is. Even if there were no evidence for ghosts, we wouldn't be able to say they couldn't exist. Right. Um, that falls into kind of the broad category of yeah. a lot of those beliefs and plus yeah. a lot of yeah. new agey stuff of an entity that doesn't leave a lot of footprints in your life so you can hypothesize right. in mm-hmm. invisible unicorns. And but the burden so, isn't on us to prove that they don't exist. That's right. A- absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, but absence of evidence means you have no evidence. And maybe a, a good way to do that is is more of just a general start sharing information with her, maybe uh, convince, you know, maybe you guys could read a book together just about uh, uh, critical thinking Something and about by Joe Nickel or by Victor Stanger well, about recent, stuff yes. about cognitive errors. How can yeah. our perceptions go wrong? Um, what are the types of phenomena that when people see visions or sleep paralysis or all these other things? Once you start getting familiar with the ways that the mind can mistakenly perceive phenomena, mm-hmm. um, it, it starts dawning on you much more quickly. Well. Look for other explanations. The the, right. the most immediate supernatural one only seems the most plausible if you are not informed on all the very different things that the mind can do. Yeah, there's a lot of new interesting evolutionary psych stuff if you're into that sort of thing. I think there's a lot of good people in London, University of London, that do work on ev psych, but uh, that that works uh, that looks at ghosts specifically and spirits and those mm-hmm. sort of things uh, and and gods as as. Uh, outcropping of our evolutionary, the way that our brain is basically wired, that we find it very difficult, for example, to imagine termination at death. Right. Uh, and so it, because it's impossible to imagine not being, we then have this mm-hmm. little uh, outcropping that says there must be entities out there that still The exist. undiscovered country. Yeah. So we know we can see that their body's obviously dead, but then we can't imagine termination of somebody's consciousness. So we project that and call that a ghost. It's right, and right. So they, and then, then we meld it together with a lot of other things like when the boards go creak or when we have mm-hmm. you know, freaky phenomena, we say must be ghosts. Um, but basically that it's, very, it's very easy to imagine a mind out there because we intuit minds all the time to our pets, to the wind, to kind of animism sort of things. It's, right. And so ghosts are essentially that uh, a projection of consciousness out there into the into random events, and we say it must be a ghost that thinks that. It's two two books I think would be great that just kind of o- overview some of this stuff. Is uh, one would be don't believe everything you think, mm. which um, if you've been a skeptic for a while, I don't suggest it. But to the new skeptics or to try to get somebody interested in skepticism, it's a really good kind of overview. And who's the um, author? I'm blanking on the author okay. right now. It's Prometheus Books, um, but it's called Don't Believe Everything You Think. The other one that I certainly do know the author is uh, Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And that's a classic. And that, too, is very readable. It doesn't read like an instruction manual on critical thinking. Lousy it reads science popularizer. It reads like an interesting nonfiction work, mm-hmm. uh, narrative nonfiction work. I just had my class read a chapter on that on the repressed memory phenomenon from psychology mm-hmm. oh. and, and because he unites it with like the UFOs, abductions mm-hmm. and the satanic rituals right. as, you know, how these movements get started with almost like a hysteria wave with the Salem witch trial type things where yeah. know, a lot of vague symptoms that are combined into a thing and it's very readable. Yeah, that's it's good stuff and so I'd always recommend that. That's probably my most favorite skeptical classic. Sure. Moving on in our mailbag, we have a letter from John. And John says, hey, guys, love the podcast, first of all. Thanks for that, John. I recently got into a discussion about what things in the Bible mean. 
The discussion focuses mostly on Genesis because that's really the only part I'm familiar with. Uh, John continues, I study physics. This is not really my forte, and I have had a hard time articulating my feelings on the subject. That's why I'm asking. My point was that if the story is not to be taken literally, which is agreed upon by all parties in this case, which is a good thing, John, you're, you're lucky there, uh, that its meaning is ambiguous because there is more than one reasonable interpretation and no one is more and no one is more or less valid than any other. My religious opponent disagreed and said there is quite a clear message in Genesis. Am I justified in disagreeing because I don't get the same message that he gets? For example, uh, regarding God's punishment of the serpent, someone referred to it as an anti-corruption, anti-malevolent intentions message in the Bible, i.e. seduce another into a fall from grace and become the lowest of the low. John says, I disagree and see it like this. I see the serpent as being the honest one in the equation, encouraging Adam and Eve to pursue knowledge, something I enjoy doing and encouraging others to do. God punishes them for acquiring knowledge, anti-intellectualism, and punishes the serpent for revealing the truth of the situation, the act of a despot, downright Orwellian, really. My question to them, and to you, I suppose, is, what makes my interpretation wrong and yours right? What do you think? Take a literary criticism class. It's all postmodernism these days. There's as many interpretations as there are readers, so that's one way to look at it. Well, as a as a lit major, I have to disagree with that uh, a bit. No, my interpretation is correct. Uh, n- no, because there are certainly there is there is room for interpretation, especially when we're talking about literature. But there are valid interpretations, and there are invalid interpretations. I can look at is um, work by Mark Twain. Huckleberry Finn and say that this is clearly he's suggesting that the black man is inferior and should be a slave. That's what I get out of reading it. No, that's just wrong. That's It's not postmodern and, well, whatever you think. No, it's actually um, there's not enough evidence to support that kind of reading. It's an incorrect reading. If that's what you got out of it, fine, but you're an idiot. So uh, go back, read it again, and tell me uh, what you find this time because that yeah. interpretation is mistaken. Now, so it's not all yeah. postmodern in, now, in literature. That's not necessarily to say that we can't ever have an interpretation of or, or find a meaning in a text, I guess I could say, uh, that is other than what the author originally intended. So oh, absolutely. For absolutely. example, a, a, I would use a, a different biblical story, the, the Tower of Babel, hmm. uh, I find to be kind of a stirring humanistic message in that, uh, that um, God is – God only confuses the languages because he's afraid of what humans could do if they were unified, if they worked together with one purpose. And heaven forbid they learn how to build iron chariots. Yeah, and uh, and so uh, that's that's the the cause of him confusing the languages at Babel, present a foil to humanity's attempts to basically usurp him. Now, now I find something stirring in that message. You know, it's the story of Prometheus human, yeah. in so many ways. Sure, He's stealing the fire from the gods. But I don't confuse that 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 message, that meaning that I take from it, that I I get some inspiration from, is anything like what the original authors intended. It's clear to me right. that that's they viewed that as a bad thing. So you can make a distinction between what we today might take from some of these myths. Uh, looking at it from our own perspective, between that and what the authors plausibly intended originally. Well, there's, and there's also not to get psychological, but it seems that people fall into kind of camps when they uh, interpret these things based on their own political and social ideology. When a, a fundamentalist reads the Garden of Eden story, it's about disobedience and the consequences of, right? Or, or people who are in who look at it from the standpoint of you know they disobeyed God, they had the knowledge, or it's but, about how evil women are. Yeah, or yeah. or, the, or wimp sub, you know women the justification of subjugation of women yep. and snakes, uh, but then when the humanists look at that story, they see like the Babel story that uh, you know when, as soon as you assert inevitably your independence against th- that you're struck down and cast out of paradise. You know that's kind of a Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung interpretation of the story of explaining our sense of disconnectedness yeah. from you know when you started off as a child you're all innocent and then you have to separate from your parents but you're cast out into the cold world and, and if you if you bring in comparative mythology and you look at a uh, sim- similar story like epic of gilgamesh mm-hmm. they have right. um 
uh, Gilgamesh's buddy, I forget his 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 pal's name, but he's a wild beast, and he's seduced by a woman uh, who's trying to civilize him and gives him a meal to to seduce him into civilization. And it's a loss of innocence story, very much along those lines. And and so, yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, you can definitely bring in many different interpretations, even of these uh, plausible for what they may have intended at the time. You can dress it up with a fig leaf, but it's it's still a Genesis story. Nice. One of the things that's been happening a lot in our email box recently is people have been clamoring, clamoring, I say, for more counter-apologetics material. And uh, this email, which comes to us from Dare We love these Welsh names. Dare we also in London, England. And uh, he has this to say. Thanks for a consistently fascinating podcast from one of your London listeners. Although the religious versus secular battles it, battle is less public here, I was raised in an evangelical Baptist church in North Wales, the UK's own Bible Belt, or proportionately shoelace. And so I am very familiar indeed with the need to escape from the mental prison of conformist religion. I found your show about a month ago after looking for some kind of response to William Lane Craig's reasonable faith. And here we are. Uh, it was for this reason that I particularly enjoyed episode 11, Bizarro World, one of a, a favorite of ours, too. I'm not very knowledgeable about the field of apologetics and counterapologetics and was so keen to find some kind of response to William Lane Craig's reasoning uh, you gave a very erudite, entertaining response. If you have time, could you give a response to his rebuttal of Euthyphro's dilemma? Okay, well, maybe we should actually talk about what exactly Euthyphro's dilemma is. Good place to start. Do, do you want to handle that, Luke? Do I get to play Socrates or Plato or... Uh, you, whatever you, whatever I'm Socrates. I'm cranky. <laughs> and ugly. <laughs> And gay. And Socrates. <laughs> Fabulous sandals. Oh. So the dialogue is written by Plato, uh, attributed to his teacher Socrates. And Socrates, the dialogues are usually written where a person will come and question and, uh, Socrates, and then he responds by doing his Socratic questioning and probing. Oh, my God. I don't know how Socrates <laughs> figured out how to do Socratic dialogues, but there it was. It's like Lou Gehrig dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. Such Crazy. a coincidence. If that doesn't prove God exists, I don't know. And so the question there was whether evil uh, is something, whether goodness is something that is intrinsic to God uh, or whether it's something that God is forced to agree with because it's just part of nature and so God just happens to line up on the side of goodness. And you, it's often used as a critique of the religion and morality uh, uh, argument because it suggests that God is either, that goodness is either uh, random, whatever God wants it to be, which makes him kind of a divine capricious bully yeah. right. uh, to just determine what's good and evil, or he is assent- that morality can exist independently of God because then he just right. happens to line up on And if morality of exists independently of God, what do we need God for to be moral? Those are the two horns that William yes. Lane Craig points out. Yeah. Um, and so William Lane Craig's attempt to split these horns using his own terminology is to say that God is a necessarily good being, that goodness is part of God's essence. And so to quote an article that's on his website, the theist tries to split the horns of the dilemma by saying God is necessarily good and that the source and standard of good is God's very nature. On the one hand, this avoids horn B, uh, so that is that God follows some standard of goodness outside of himself, since goodness, rather than existing outside of God, is part of God's very nature and, in fact, depends upon him for existence. And on the other hand, it avoids horn A, since God's will isn't arbitrary, but rather operates according to a definite moral standard, God's necessarily good nature. So they're trying to avoid that dilemma. And uh, I got to be completely honest here. I'm not certain that Craig didn't succeed in his argument. Hmm. I don't have as much of a philosophy background as you, but it just one thing that struck me before we get into the nuts and bolts of it is that whatever defense he makes is more articulate than anything God ever uh, developed. It almost, I mean, how can yeah. you read that and not look <laughs> post hoc like he's trying to say, yeah. whoa, yikes, 
Atheists have a point between with these horns. Let's just find some reason to square the circle and make it all jail. Sure. Well, why does he have to do that? Shouldn't right. it be obvious that shouldn't God say, well, what I'm really doing, humanity, is blah blah blah? He's he's much more sophisticated than God is in trying to in trying to make it all tidy and neat. It does seem ad hoc. Uh, that's what usually happens in these arguments is that they take the scattered pieces of all the clearly right. barbaric stuff and then they say, here's why it has to be moral because we've already established that God is moral. So it's just a matter of finding out right. what's the morality right. in the situation. He wanted to kill – told them to kill Isaac because – and that's why it's moral. They start off by presuming that these things must be moral and it's just up to us pure sure. d- uh, dumb yeah. humans to find – where mm-hmm. God's morality lies in this. And that's the problem with all sort of ad hoc hypotheses is that they – if you want to go to the drawing board and come up with a god that will avoid all potential criticisms that you're, that people can come up with, um, you can do that. You can do that until the end of days. Sure. Just keep on going back and rewriting your god specifically for no other purpose than to avoid these critiques. But where – at what point do you stop and say – what reason do we have in believing in this God? Where did we get the idea of this God with his attributes other than just to avoid criticism? Right. Does the Bible give any sort of textual evidence that this is God's nature? And Craig might say that it does uh, in using – but I think the best scriptures he could possibly marshal to that would be stuff like God is love and these very vague – Right, pronouncements right, right. that don't don't have in them a sophisticated theology, really, and and would yeah, be and assuming standard, too much. Our standard response to those things was always, you know, find something that God couldn't do, or some sort of act that just got would be out of bounds for God, and you know, clearly. Yes. Clearly, they can't point to any because there's so many ter- much terrible stuff that they, you know, again have to presume that he's moral first. Because, gee, right. if I have a god, he's probably got to be pretty moral. Let's just make sense of all this stuff and make it look moral. See, the right. Greeks didn't have this problem. The the Greek gods could do anything they wanted. They didn't have to be moral. No, no, and and yeah, I would just reiterate that um, the the critique we've shared on the show before, we can maintain that critique regardless of whether or not. Craig successfully splits the horns of Euthyphro's dilemma because the the real issue is not whether God's morality is arbitrary or whether it conforms to some sort of external standard of morality. The real issue is, is it intelligible at all? Does it make sense to say that God is holy? You can say that God must be holy because it's essential to his nature. But if we don't understand what that means, if we can't say what actions he can perform then because of that or what actions he can't perform. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what that word goodness means. And what does that mean to be, though, to be God is necessarily moral? God couldn't do anything otherwise than moral. Does, I don't see how that avoids the horns of the argument. No. So God can't do things because those would be immoral things. So God's – Well, it means that he's not following a standard outside of himself uh, because he is his own standard. And but it, at the same time – He's trying to avoid the idea that it's arbitrary because it's not just God decides, I want to do this, I want to do that, and so that's good. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's in line with his essential goodness and it's just coming out of who he is, then they think that avoids the whole idea of of it being arbitrary. And uh, and the point is regardless of whether or not that successfully avoids it, it's still unintelligible because we have a God – in harem, you know, the ban in the Old Testament, they could they could basically commit genocide within the boundaries of, of the Holy Land. He sends a spirit of delusion. Unless Craig can give us a clear criteria, here, here would be uh, an action that would be inconsistent with God's essentially good nature. Then the, the concept is vacuous. The concept of his righteousness is it, it gives us no more information about who he is. And to say that he's so anything. far beyond us that we can't hope to understand it is just punting it down the road and saying, right, right. you know, gee, the, you're right. It doesn't make sense. So I'm so, sure it would to God. Then why believe Craig, in this God? Craig kind of recognizes this is how, how he's been answered. Yeah. Uh, he says in this article, our concern is with moral ontology. That is to say the foundation and reality of mo- moral values. Our concern is not with moral semantics, that is to say the meaning of moral terms. So I think he realizes this is a weakness. Mm. The theist is quite ready to say we have a clear understanding of moral vocabulary like good, evil, right, and so on without reference to God. Thus it is informative, he thinks, that God is essentially good. Well, this this would be strange. He'd be say since we already have a grasp of moral truths outside of knowing God, then to say that God is essentially good – 
is an informative statement because of our own you know, human grasp of ethics. But of course, God, as we just explained, God violates all those rules that we, we find ethical, that we are even demanded in the biblical texts to follow. Um, God clearly violates those. So, so actually, it, it isn't informative to say God is essentially good. And so when Craig says, too, too often opponents of the moral argument launch misguided attacks upon it by confusing moral ontology with either moral semantics or even more often moral epistemology, I would say, Craig, it's not misguided. It's actually getting to the real essential meat of this argument is not whether or not you can preserve God's nature as being righteous or not. It's whether or not we even understand or can make any sort of meaningful sense out of what that means. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I, I think maybe going off into Euthyphro dilemma entirely is, is somewhat of a red herring to what the real issue is. And I might add in a side note, does that mean that to, for us to be moral, it's just simply a matter of obedience? We just need to follow whatever it is. If, if, if whatever God is inherent to his nature, then we just simply just have to do lockstep obedience to that. But just, yep. do we do what he says or what he does? Because if it's what he does, then we can murder infants. We can have premarital sex. We can... Um, <laughs> Are we recounting Mary as premarital uh, absolutely. sex? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. She's a virgin. Well, why not? I mean, <laughs> you can be angry and jealous and smiting and... Exactly. Exactly. Or right. do we have to do exactly what he – the laws he gives us, which are um, frequently – Capricious, or, contradictory. Well, it, contradictory. Incidentally, yeah. that's why we ever talked about Euthyphro in, in conjunction to a moral argument about God in, in the first place. And that is I, I don't think it's so essential to try to peg up uh, Christians on one or either horn. Mm -hmm. um, what Euthyphro's dilemma is good – at is instructing people in, in a very important point that can be made outside of Euthyphro's dilemma, and that is God's righteousness is different in kind than human righteousness. It's not just different in degree. It's not like God follows the standards that he's given to human beings and follows them perfectly without flaw, without any type of, of transgression. That's clearly not the case. He doesn't follow those commandments. And so Euthyphro's dilemma, it's a good setup right. for that point. Sure. But the point could be made outside of it. So thank you uh, for that argument, William Lane Craig, and thanks for bringing it to our attention, dare we. Yeah, and Derry wasn't uh, wasn't the only one no. to have brought that up. Actually, I've, I've been surprised how many people have asked about Euthyphro's dilemma. There have been a lot, so um, I'm I'm glad we got to it. Go read the Plato thing to get to get it straight from the source. Um, Platonic dialogue. Those Greeks thought of everything. Yeah, they did. They did, and all without Jesus. <laughs> well, they had Dionysus, which is basically the same thing, only with more sex. And now the other argument that we've been receiving a lot of email about. It's an argument that's been advanced by a lot of apologists, but it originates – some say it originates with C.S. Lewis. Um, the, the, oh, the more – yeah. The more robust argument, the, the more – really the less naive argument too would be formulated by Plattinga, who <laughs> is a professor of epistemology and I believe philosophy of religion at Notre Dame University. Hmm. Yes, Alvin Plattinga. The argument is called the Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism. It even has its own acronym, E-A-A-N. That's a crappy acronym. E-A-N. Is it another one of our Welsh listeners? <laughs> <laughs> the argument is actually quite a sophisticated probability-based argument. Um, if you want to get into it in the most amount of depth, you're, you'd be best to consult the philosophical literature about it. There's a fa fair deal of it out there. Uh, it was recognized by many people to be an important argument, uh, a unique argument, one that needed to be combated by naturalists early on. And there have mm -hmm. been extensive rebuttals back and forth between philosophers, um, mostly in the more rationalist school dealing with it. So we are going to deal with this argument 
on a, I don't want to say a more superficial level, but we're going to deal with this argument on a level that would be more accessible to the average listener of this show rather than trying to get into an Calling extended our, our logical. Calling listener stupid? Is that, is that what you're saying? No, I'm not at all saying that. I'm saying I don't want to get into the probability of S given N and E yeah, yeah, yeah. is therefore lower yeah. than, yes, yeah, I'm trying to avoid that. I'm sort bored of already. Right. Okay. So the, the basics of the argument are this. Plantinga argues when you look at naturalism, the view that there's no supernatural agent guiding evolution or any sort of process like that, mm-hmm. he feels that the probability that we could evolve cognitive capacities mm-hmm. and he would include in that beliefs, that we could evolve beliefs or a belief engine, a, a kind of a mechanism for finding truth – the probability that we could evolve such a capacity for true beliefs is very, very low if the process of evolution is unguided. This is part of how he makes his argument. Let me read a, a quote from Plantinga. This is from his book, Warrant and Proper Function. He says, that our species has survived and evolved at most guarantees that our behavior is adaptive. It does not guarantee or even suggest that our belief-producing processes are reliable or that our beliefs are for the most part true. That is because our behavior could be adaptive, but our beliefs could be false. Okay, so the idea is he's not going to argue against evolution. In fact, he accepts evolution. He's not going to argue that evolution wouldn't produce adaptive behavior uh, because we need that type of behavior to be able to survive. Mm -hmm. What he argues is that there's no reason for our beliefs to accurately represent the truth. All we need are beliefs that are adaptive. Um, and in fact, he may even argue against that. He doesn't seem to really take it as a plausible option that behavior actually um, is instructed at all by beliefs. He tends to he's he he seems to think one of the theories that would be a little bit more credible is what we would call epiphenomenalism, kind of the idea that your your beliefs are just kind of an act afterthought of everything else that's been deterministically going in in your head mm-hmm. and doesn't really go back into the causal chain. At least that seems to be what he's suggesting in, in my, my reading of it. Uh, but let me give you a, a further quote to kind of illustrate – this again is from Platingo where he stands on this. This is Plantinga's case or a portion of it for how it is that a behavior could be adaptive but based on a false belief. Paul is a prehistoric hominid. Huh. This again is from Warrant and Proper Function. Why would a, pre- why would a hominid be named Paul? I don't know. Paul is a prehistoric hominid. The exigencies of survival call for him to display tiger avoidance behavior. There will be many behaviors that are appropriate, fleeing, for example, climbing a steep rock face, or crawling into a hole too small to admit a tiger, or leaping into a handy lake. Pick any appropriately specific behavior, B, and Paul engages in B, we think, because sensible fellow that he is, he has an aversion to being eaten and believes that B is a good means of thwarting the tiger's intentions. Yeah, I can so far follow along that line quite easily. But clearly, this avoidance behavior could be the result of thousands of other belief-desire combinations. Perhaps Paul very much likes the idea of being eaten, but whenever he sees a tiger, he always runs off looking for a better prospect. This will get his body parts into the right place so far as survival is concerned without involving much by way of true belief. Or perhaps he thinks the tiger is a large, friendly, cuddly pussycat and wants to pet it. But he also believes the best way to pet it is to run away from it. Or perhaps he confuses running towards it with running away from it. Or perhaps he thinks the tiger is a regularly reoccurring illusion and hoping to keep his weight down has formed the resolution to run a mile at top speed whenever presented with such an illusion. Or perhaps he thinks he is about to take part in a 1,600-meter race, wants to win, and believes appearance of the tiger is a starting signal. So clearly... This is again from Plantinga. There are a number of belief-desire systems that equally fit a given bit of behavior where the beliefs are mostly false. So based on this, 
because that can be the case, because you because he he sees there's no essential connection um, between the beliefs that would one would have and the behaviors that would be adaptive. Mm-hmm. He thinks the the order of probability that adaptive behaviors would be linked up with truth, true beliefs, a system that could recognize truths in the world. He thinks that's very low. I guess when I when I read this, I did, one thing I was always like, what's the alternative? So if you, your beliefs are unreliable because your brain has evolved to survive, not to be accurate. Right. So like, is that how is that an argument then for? Is that an argument that everything's just relative, and so you might as well believe in faith because it's just as wacky and crazy? Like, <laughs> what's the alternative? No, no, this is the alternative. What he would say is is that uh, because of this, evolution is self defeating. Uh, or, or rather naturalism is a self-defeating belief system. If natural selection could uh, – is it's very low probability that it could have produced in us the ability to recognize the truth. Well, then we have to say that our belief system doesn't rest on any true foundations. And so we have to come to the conclusion then that we – that naturalism is false, that there's no it's, – it's self-defeating. So it's, it's self – self-conflicting, self-contradictory. So wouldn't and it he also would argue, apply to theistic beliefs though? Well, he would argue then that – here's a quote from Platinga. The traditional theist on the other hand has no corresponding reason for doubting that it is a purpose of our cognitive systems to produce true beliefs nor any reason for thinking the probability of a belief being true given that it is a product of her cognitive faculties is low or inscrutable. She may indeed endorse some form of evolution, of evolution. If she does, it will be a form of evolution guided and orchestrated by God, uh, not the unguided evolution of, say, a naturalist. It right. sounds like what they're doing is saying that we're setting up naturalism on one end and then theism on the other. And if I can say that naturalism is in any way unreliable, I leave my position standing left by default. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he you, is a, you don't win an argument by just attacking the opponent. You have to provide some <laughs> sort of positive evidence that yours makes more sense than the other Welcome one. Welcome right. to the world of reformed epistemology. <laughs> uh, this, this, is, uh, this is presuppositionalism. And yeah, basically it's, it's what we would call a coherent coherentist system. He's not convinced that we should select belief systems on whether or not they correspond to reality. They kind of give up that project of being possible in the first place. So they judge. How do you drive a car? Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm, it looks like my visual system was detecting this truck heading towards me, but I can't rely on that as being truth in any way. So I'm just going to keep, you know. Yeah. Well, they well, would they would judge the the belief system as a whole to be on good foundation if it's coherent. And so what they try to show is that I have no reformed that. epistemology is the only coherent system out there, uh, and all other ones have some fatal flaw somewhere that makes their belief system incoherent. So yeah, right off the bat, he doesn't feel he needs to demonstrate the existence of God. He doesn't need to provide a mechanism to how God created our cognitive faculties to be reliable. He just thinks there's a self-defeating principle in naturalism and therefore pff, not a coherent theory. You can just throw it aside. Well, see, also, yeah, in psychology, we, we're trained all the time about how the biases are built into our system with optical illusions and, you know, and, and visual ways of and, and right. ways of thinking like, you know, uh, uh, even phobias were more easily phobic to some things that would have been threatening, even though in the present day snakes and spiders aren't a big threat. Right. That, that's how wired our system is wired to be, you know, adapt mm-hmm. to be adaptive, not necessarily accurate. And I'm with him on that. But then uh, beliefs, uh, naturalism is not based on my own personal beliefs. It's established through uh, consensus through and evidence and, gathering right, yeah. and empirical things that are external to me or you. And so that v- those things are verified. If it was just my own armchair philosophy or something like that, then then yes, maybe my beliefs would be suspect because they're just internal to me. Yeah. But if right. I could test them out and, and engage in rationalist d- disputation and gather evidence on things, how is that subject to how is that subject to my right. bias? If you do have uh, Paul, the prehistoric man, out in the wilderness by himself with with no one else to attest to this reality that he perceives then he may have an argument. But meanwhile, we're not isolated. You know, we have... What if his friend Peter says that is in fact a tiger and dangerous and, and then Paul, exactly. I can consensually validate that it yes. exists. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's look, at, look at that aspect. And, and I, I think he's really... Um, his understanding of evolution here and how evolution has 
informed our cognitive abilities or gone into design. Yeah, seems to be really, really superficial. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll quote uh, a response to that, the scenario with Paul, that the idea that you could have adaptive behaviors but based on completely false beliefs. This is a critique by Doug Shaver. Plantinga notes that Paul's survival depends on tiger avoidance behavior, and so it did, but tigers were not the only predators that our ancestors had to avoid. It would have been unnecessary and inefficient for natural selection to have wired our brains with one routine for tiger avoidance, another for wolf avoidance, another for leopard avoidance. A generalized predator avoidance scheme would have been better for several reasons, mainly because only one general routine would have had to be needed if it was flexible enough to respond appropriately to all predators that an early hominid was likely to encounter. Mm. And, and so uh, others have brought this, this critique up of, of Plantinga's idea of how evolution operates also. The fact is our adaptive behaviors seem to be systematic. They work across the board. They need to be able to improvise. They need to be able to deal with new situations. Mm-hmm. And some have brought, brought up the fact that look at, look at our brain. Look at our expensive brains that have taken a lot of energy to use. I can't remember who said it but uh, pointed out that uh, you know, Homo sapiens kind of has all its eggs in one basket. We don't have ferocious claws. We don't have big teeth. Uh, we have these big oversized brains. Right. And so in the long run of evolution, wouldn't it be – a better, more adaptive system to have some sort of general belief engine that did select for truths that on, on, the, on the whole would be accurate rather than just random beliefs but, but adaptive behaviors following from them. The scenario that he lines out here would be ridiculous. Again, quoting uh, Doug Shaver, a belief generator that functioned with no regard for actual truth would effectively always produce a false belief. If Paul is confronting a tiger, the number of false beliefs he could have had that would by chance cause adaptive behavior is a minuscule fraction of false beliefs that would be dangerous to hold. A random belief generator would probably not serve him well. It could, but the odds are long against it. Statistically speaking, he really is better off with a brain that generates beliefs that are likely to be true. You know, many Christians also make the argument that uh, that, that agree with evolution. We're talking not creationist ones that that say that um, that's proof of that there is a divine power that we've evolved to appreciate him. That is, they say that, okay, uh, I can see that uh, a lot of beliefs might be evolutionarily wired. We have the God-shaped hole in our brain, and that's Uh proof that that God wants us to, you know, that's kind of a C.S. Lewis type thing that we we seek. Now, if that's the case, that those things have evolved evolutionary wise and evolution is produces unreliable beliefs that that perception is unreliable that is if i've evolved to seek god and if his argument is correct and that is you can't trust anything that was wired by evolution to be accurate then that belief is inaccurate subject to that same undercurrent yeah. then isn't it I, I think they would be susceptible to that critique but i think a presuppos- presuppositionalist probably wouldn't find that convincing simply because they they think they have a right to their own their own set of assumptions and that they don't need to defend it. Mm-hmm. So they would just put this into two distinct worlds. Well, that's that's the world you live in. The world we live in is with this set of foundational beliefs. So I don't need to accept that. But I think as as we were talking about in other episodes too, a lot of what we're finding out with evolutionary psychology is that um, religion does uh, – the, some of the beliefs that underpin religion right. is are, are themselves based on evolution. The, yeah. uh, right. the supposition that there is something out there the that cares about me, that, the group yeah. – you know, all these kind of right. separate mechanisms. And so I could – you know, not only does naturalism – you know, I think naturalism also accounts for a lot of their own underpinnings uh, right, of right. their own beliefs, and they should take account of that. And and even I think there's a, I think there's an argument here, uh, an appeal to the best explanation going on. I mean, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. Platinga seems to accept evolution, he thinks evolution is self-defeating for naturalism. He's rejecting naturalism, not evolution. As we both acknowledge, there is something that's right about this critique, and that is. Evolution is a haphazard process. Uh, it this doesn't. Is why not everything survives? It doesn't guarantee that our that our belief systems will always hone in on the truth. Uh, so, for example, the very idea of a of a belief engine: type one and two hits, and type one and two misses. You know, it it would be advantageous for us 
to find a situation where we believe a truth and not believe a falsehood or we reject a falsehood uh, and not reject a truth, those types of things. Mm-hmm. Well, think about how sloppy some of those processes are. Think about, um, for example, the, the post hoc fallacies. We will assume oftentimes that because two events are related in time, that they are related causally. Mm-hmm. So because uh, uh, you know, a real ridiculous example would be because the rooster crows and then the sun gro- comes up, the rooster crow is causing the sun to go up. Right. Not too many people believe that particular one, but we see post Not anymore. We see post hoc reasoning everywhere. It's a very consistent error in cognition that people make. Now you could say though that evolution crafted that because that being able to relate things causally in time is a very ad- advantageous thing. And even if you're going to get a few misses, if you're going to accept a few false beliefs because of it, oh, well, I, the, the voodoo master swung his cane up and down and made me touch the goat's testicles and, uh, and therefore I got better from my sickness. You know, certain beliefs like that are going to creep in. But overall, that ability to be able to link things causally in time, I ate said mushroom and I got sick. Therefore, that mushroom caused me to be sick. It could right. be adaptive. Yeah, and all the stuff on morality and evolution we've talked about in previous episodes, like the trolley problem, mm-hmm. where we're you know that we we would rather flip a switch to mm-hmm. kill one then person instead of five, a... but then push a fat man over, even yeah. though a rational explanation would say those are it's equivalent. Yeah. There, our evolution leads us actually to do the moral thing, right? Uh, you know, or I guess if an emotionally moral thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't push somebody who's right in front of you. Yeah. We, we're kind of wired, it seems, to do that sort of thing because a switch wouldn't have meant anything to our so Pla- so Planiga is right. Right, that we we have ways of looking at the world that can lead us to false conclusions that are adaptive, but what he's what he's ignoring is the fact that we can override those. We can actually rel- we we can subject those cognitive errors to further investigation. We can use the systems that adapted that do lead to good beliefs to actually tease those out. It's a situation that's kind of akin to uh, imagine a mirage. You see a mirage in the desert. It looks like a lake. Would we therefore then conclude because our eyes can deceive us, because our perceptual systems will occasionally deceive us, therefore we can't have any confidence, any kind of trust in them? Just gouge them out. Well, we know. I'd verify it by sending Dave out to go see whether that's a real lake and yeah. report back to me. Yes. But that is exactly what we would do. We would appeal to further evidence. We would use our other perceptual abilities, being able to get to closer proximity, being able to touch the sand and see if it's water or not. We would use those to circumvent errors that we're prone to make. And so it's simply not true that if there are a few cases where our thinking sometimes leads us astray. Therefore, we're not entitled to trust our our reasoning anymore. All that argues for is that we need to be more careful about it, that we need to be very much on the lookout for how our thinking might go astray. But I'm wondering how he would account from that, from from his God-given view. If theism is acceptable, it gives us trust of our systems. Well, why would God make them so faulty? Yeah. And why would he make them faulty in a way that we might expect if evolution was to be unguided. That's what Dawkins always says. Yeah. Everything looks He's precisely, a smart guy. Everything looks precisely as it would if it was not designed. Well, we can, you know, we can kind of play their own game and just, you know, put it up there. Naturalism as a thesis, theism as a, as, as a thesis. Which, which theory could account for the data with the fewest amount of background assumptions and account for all the data? I'm, I'm wondering how theism would explain our tendency to post hoc reasoning. Mm-hmm. How would theism explain nation bias, the uh, base rate? We have a poor acknowledgement of base rate. You know, stati- all the behavioral economic stuff, saying that we're more averse to risk than right. than yeah. the same problem with just different wording as for profit. So there's all kinds of things showing that we, you know, our, but, our economic yeah. decisions not are, just psychological but physical limitations. I mean, why why would my back hurts? Yeah, exactly. I mean, why? Are our eyes limited to such a small spectrum of light? Doesn't make sense. He would have to. He would have to explain how God guided the process. Sin? 
to give us some types of thinking that would be reliable, but then all of these other cognitive errors. And and really, he's never going to be able to give that mechanism. He's kind of banking on the idea that he won't have to. Yeah. I think there's another point here that he's not recognizing either is that not all our beliefs uh, – because I could see somebody who subscribes to this evolutionary argument against naturalism coming back with this. Well, OK. Some of our beliefs are, are like that. But what about the laws of logic? How could we ever get that grasp of those you know, axioms of logic, A equals A? Uh, or the law of non-contradiction. You can't have a thing that is is itself and not itself in the same way, in the same respect. How could evolution ever select for knowledge of those things? And uh, what he doesn't seem to acknowledge is the fact that our cultural evolution has very much outstripped our genetic evolution. Right. Um, not all of our beliefs are that we hold today are a result of uh, not all of them are are there because they were somehow adaptive or evolved biologically. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mechanisms, kind of the, the basic underlying system of you know being able to recognize symbols and manipulate them, those would have had to have evolved. But a lot of our knowledge of reason and logic has come through cultural evolution. You know, Aristotle had to discover some of those things. Right. He had to coin certain phrases. Um, that we didn't have before, we had to generate certain concepts. We had to wait until the time when we had vocabulary sophisticated and symbols sophisticated enough to manipulate these ideas and mm-hmm. concepts. That was a very long, hard one process that we went through. The ability to actually get around some of these cognitive errors and and use our strengths and and use dialogue and intellectual evolution, I guess you could say, the evolution of ideas to to help us discover the foundations of thought and right. reliable thinking. We didn't we weren't born with them instinctually. And if coming to conclusions using reason and logic is unreliable, then Thomas Aquinas's and all those people who do yeah. who do apologetics, that's unreliable as well because it relies on the same process. Lane Craig, yeah. What makes it what makes Thomas Aquinas any different from his the way that he uses things from a naturalist exactly. using the same mechanisms of mm-hmm. logic and reason? There's a lot of people out there who are persuaded by that argument, feel that it rests on strong grounds and is a and is a good critique, but. Uh, I, I, I just don't see it. Uh, mm-hmm. it. It seems to me that this is – it's a flawed understanding of evolution. It doesn't take into account things like sexual selection, things like cultural uh, evolution that, that wouldn't work on just an adaptive framework. Mm-hmm. And it has no way to account for those real cognitive errors that we have that seems to be a product of evolution. Because I, I sometimes get tired of these arguments, they seem – like little games apologists yeah, it's, will it's sometimes play. Absolutely. Um, that I, I was reading last night kind of preparing for this and I, I thought of actually a way that we could frame this argument and just kind of throw it around back on them. So tell me what you guys think of this. Here would be my biblical argument against theism based loosely on Platinga's idea. Uh, here would be the propositions uh, – Based on uh, on the Bible, follow with me here. Uh, yes. God God deludes people quite often. He'll send sure. a spirit of deception. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that only the few will enter. Right. The right. the path to hell is is broad. The the path to heaven is is narrow. Yep. So you know the vast majority of people will not accept those true beliefs that will get them into heaven. So given those two realities, I would say that the probability. The, the probability that God would have given us reliable cognitive faculties mm-hmm. is very low given theism, given biblical theism. Therefore, since the probability is very low that you would be actually understanding the truth and not just one of the many deceived going to hell, right. um, theism is self-defeating. One cannot maintain theism because you've removed your your foundation. You you can't argue that it's reliable that you actually know God's will and aren't aren't deceived. Nice. And to any of our Christian listeners if if you find that insulting, if you find that kind of un, not really fairly looking at the complexity of the Bible's views on truth and everything like that, then you you kind of understand how we feel when we look at arguments like planning us mm-hmm. because that is how they seem to me. It's just kind of a game. 
Right. We could play the same game on the other side. Did God deceive uh, people like uh, Saul or Pharaoh or these people by messing with their heads? He hardened Pharaoh's heart and yep. he, he causes Saul to do crazy things. He sent an so, so evil David, spirit on them. Yeah, Absolutely. to become king. So, so yeah. God messes with your mind. How are you supposed to know? What would, you, what would be the proper course of action if you're one of those unlucky people? If you're Saul and then God's messing with your neurons or whatever, should you mm-hmm. say, oh, well, okay, thanks, God. Uh, I'll just be depressed like you want me to or right. do right. something and crazy. Could, could you really trust that you weren't one of the deceived? Or, and yeah. yeah, so how did Abraham supposed to know that God really wanted him to kill Isaac, but Pharaoh's not supposed to act on that? Like if God's messing with our synapses, nothing's reliable. And, you know, we would never even know it. He mm-hmm. could be poking us around. And, and therefore, since their argument is wrong, ours must be right. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, Naturalism see? stands the so, only victor here. Woohoo! Yay! Yay! So you guys have both had the pleasure or possibly displeasure at this point of seeing Bill Maher's movie Religious. I haven't seen it yet, so um, and probably a lot of our listeners have not had the chance to see it yet. What are they in for when they go to see this uh, epic film about religion's influence on the world? Well, that's a good question, Dave. I don't know. I I, I feel kind of torn on my opinion of Religious as a as just a human being and consumer of the film Mm -hmm. and somebody who is also involved in trying to promote these ideas because the human being side of me just thought it was hilarious and really got a kick out of it. Um, Well, that's good. The more movement-minded side of me thought it was a little over the top, not likely to reach anybody across the aisle. That's the discussion on the blogosphere. As with every other... Yeah. Dawkins book or anything it has Christopher Hitchens says the movie is, splits the community down uh, into the uh, people that say tell it like it is you know preach get yeah. them show versus yeah. the pra- the pragmatic wing that says this isn't going to change anybody's mind and it's going to piss a lot of people off so yeah. it's not there to change minds it's there to make fun of people and so. it, it was very it was very Borat like uh, mm. which being from the director of Borat, of Borat. You, yes. you might expect but there were a couple of times where I thought like. Um, even even regardless of any of the ideas involved, that Mar was coming off as just a little rude. Well, that, the other controversy he is does is, that though. Yeah, yeah, that's his style of humor. I was reading in the and it's the, funny. Some of the <laughs> websites talk funny. about the uh, gotcha style where they didn't inform the subjects yeah. of who would be interviewing them. Sure. So one of the other controversies with the movie was that whether that's fair. Uh, fair. We tend to decry that tactic in yeah. the religious right type movies, but uh, so maybe we shouldn't use it. Uh, but then the director defends it by saying that. You know, regardless, the people were allowed to have their say, and if they come off looking as idiots, or if they don't want to talk to Bill Maher, then yeah, that's, that's irrelevant the to the content. And, yeah. so. If you yeah, view right. it as a comedy and not a documentary, then I think it's it was hilarious. I I really got a kick out of most of it. You don't have to be pass an IQ test to be in the Senate. <laughs> oh, that guy was just pause, asking for pause it. for effect. Nice. And nice. I really I thought um, they they opened up with that scene in the in the oh the truckers' chapel. Yeah, the Trucker's Chapel. Nice. And um, I, it was very confrontational, very heated. Yet at the end, it was kind of – he made some sort of effort to, to reach out and be like, OK, well, pray for me, guys. You guys are all real nice guys. You guys seem like smart guys and these types of things. And so at the very beginning, I was kind of crossing my fingers going, well, maybe – Maybe he'll be able to, you know, on the one hand, burn some of these lame ideas, but come off as a with some tact and as a human being. And I think that that steadily kind of declined as the film went on. Yeah, uh, still worth going out to see. Definitely, I think as with all the other wave of the new atheism stuff with the books and the and the appearances of the authors and such, this is going to be it's going to self-select a certain type of crowd. Mm-hmm. So that, that the people sure. that are there are likely to people who wouldn't be offended anyway. But if you drag along your, let's say, moderately religious friend, it might be a toss-up as to whether they would be offended or not. Uh, right. Some of them might say, oh, well, that's a good point or whatever. But other ones might say, you can't say that. So it's, I think they might yeah. find it easier to when they're poking fun of Mormons or poking fun of uh, you know, Muslim extremists, Scientologists, that sort of thing. I think there will be a lot of people that will find themselves laughing when it's not yeah. their religion mm. that is being discussed. Well, Which is typically <laughs> the case. That's one yeah. of the points he makes yeah. in the movie is he rattles off a bunch of crazy beliefs and, like under the guise of Scientology and the Mormons and, 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 
but then it makes a point of saying, well, but, you know, what's any more solid about Christian beliefs than zombie and, Jesus and, and, and all of that? Yeah. So yeah. as always, that, that, yes, tends to people tend to find it funny when it's anybody else's religion. Hmm. I don't think we should stop talking about it without briefly mentioning that last five minutes of the film. What did you think of that, Luke? Uh, somebody prepared me for that. They said that they didn't like the last five minutes of the movie because it got very preachy quickly from a comedy to a screeching halt. To, uh, but I think that um, you know it was very Sam Harris-esque in that respect mm-hmm. too, but that by saying we can th- think this is ridiculous and funny, but these people could bring about the next you know nuclear explosion. And mm-hmm. there, it was a montage of all the violence and the end times kind of thought that brings about um, a devaluing of the life you know sure. here, here as we know it. And so uh, it did kind of bring it. It was a contrast to the tone of the rest of the movie which yeah. is kind of jokey and loopy and then it's suddenly like oh these, there's blood on the screen and you know yeah which you know and, and I haven't seen it yet but I think that is um, an effective tactic in a lot of ways because we can laugh at, at things like oh you know like in Jesus Camp too there's a lot of stuff in it that's that's very silly and you know boy look at the crazy people and then all of a sudden you see yeah. them worshipping a cardboard George Bush and you think this is. I thought that was the real George Bush. Oh, they're easy to. I thought it was. They're usually two dimensional. Right, but but to bring that reality, where it's not just look at how silly religious yeah. people are, it's look at how dangerous silly yeah. beliefs can be. The problem I think is that the way it was done was a little over the top. Mm. It was just bashing you over the head with it all of a sudden, and certain words were poorly chosen, such as uh, I think he said, "Religion must die if the rest of yeah, us are going to live." Now, That's now a bit much. the overall message of what he's, he seemed to be putting it actually in a maturity frame, which I really liked, the idea ending with, you know, grow up people right. and that type of thing. But using that phrase, religion must die, I, I think a lot of people are going to listen to it who buy into these arguments, you know, that communism, atheism leads to communism, leads to persecution of religion. They're going to hear that phrase, religion must die, and they're not going to hear through – the onward progress of reason, the gradual illumination of the mind, they're going to hear, oh, yeah, it must die. Who's going to kill it, Bill? And uh, right. and who's going to take that upon themselves to make that happen? And so it could easily be misconstrued to make us look exactly like what was being pasted across the screen at that moment, a bunch of zealous ideologues willing to attack others in their vision of a perfect world. Yeah, I think by necessity that that he uh, you, when you do that sort of message with unpleasant aspects of religion, it pulls people to have the usual defense and say though you're just focusing on the extreme elements, which is what some of the columns did. I think our local right. paper column yeah. on the on the thing said uh, he's just picking out the easy targets with truckers and the and the suicide bombers and and, sure. and then saying that all religions not like that. That's usually the very first objection that people right. uh, give is that oh all religion is not which like is that. valid. It it you know there's. Of course, going to be selective evidence, but um, the overall message that mm-hmm. there certainly is a danger to any distorted worldview, whether it's a naturalistic worldview that's that's irrational, or it's a religious worldview. So, yeah, I think that's that's the key. He should have stuck with his doubt thing. He says, "I'm trying to sell doubt here, not certainty." With yeah, his message. yeah, he should. That was a good. That was a good line uh, throughout the film. He should have stuck with that. Yeah, so religious, see it and make up your own mind. <laughs> Which is kind of our theme, isn't it? Yeah. Right before we went on hi- hiatus for the summer, we announced a contest to win a book from one of the guests that we've had on the show. And the winner was Jennifer Smith, one of the Jennifer Smiths out there. One of the many. One of the many uh, Jennifer Smiths who I believe listens with her family, which yeah. is fantastic. And another reminder for us to try to keep it a little bit clean. And they requested a copy of Austin Dacey's The Secular Conscience, I believe. Mostly because of the picture of him on the dust jacket. Uh, wow. I'm hearing about that. Man, he's yep. so sexy. Yeah, yeah. I heard you embarrassed him with the sexy thing again. I, I did at embarrass a convention. him. Yeah, at, at a convention he was talking and I, I forget what question I had for him after – his talk, but I went up to the microphone. And I said, you know, just just to put it out there in, in interest of um, full disclosure, I have a complete and total man crush on you. Yeah. And uh, his whole 
um, <coughs> sexy bald head turned rad. And... It's going to be really hard to get a second interview with the restraining order he's going to place on it, That's you. the great thing about radio is I don't have to be within 100 <laughs> feet of him. It's, it's great. I'm sure we're violating some FCC rule as we speak. <laughs> Uh, so congratulations, Jennifer Smith and family, for getting a copy of that uh, that wonderful book by that wonderful, wonderful man. Call me Austin. Um, well, on that positive note, we'll close out this edition of Reasonable Doubts. Uh, please send us your emails, questions, comments, challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.doubtcast.org. Find us on Facebook. We have a group and a fan page. Find us on MySpace. Find us on iTunes. Find us on 1680 AM WPRR Reality Radio. So thanks for listening. Till next time. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>